Hello and welcome to Dragon Bites Basics, the paediatric podcast aimed at healthcare students or anyone in need of a refresher about common paediatric conditions. I'm Asim, one of the paediatric trainees here in Wales and one of the presenters for Dragon Bites. Each week, medical students will be joining paediatric doctors from Wales to discuss these common paediatric conditions and give them insights into paediatric problems that they may not have faced before. These episodes are just introductions and aren't meant to replace your regular revision. Remember, there will be some regional variations in practice and practice will change as new evidence comes to light. However, this is paediatrics made easy to help students get their head around some new concepts. This week's episode is about meningitis and meningococcal disease. Our host for this week is going to be Stephanie Windsor, a medical student at Cardiff University, and she's going to speak to Dr. Mega Jagger, a paediatric registrar based in Wales Deanery. Meg is going to try and disambiguate the terms meningitis and meningococcal disease and touch a little bit upon septicemia as well. It's worth bearing in mind that sepsis and its management is still an area of a lot of contention and changing opinions in paediatrics. But what Meg is going to present here is just a basic outline of our approach to men and management of sepsis or meningitis or meningococcal disease at the moment. Um, hello and welcome to the Dragon Bites Basics, the student edition of Dragon Bites, with me, Stephanie Windsor, um, a medical student at Cardiff University. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Mega Jagger, a paediatric speciality trainee, um, who has kindly agreed to talk to us about meningococcal disease. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you. Um, so sort of let's get started. So to start off, um, can you tell me sort of a little bit about sort of how does uh, meningococcal disease occur and sort of the pathophysiology um, around it? Yes, of course. Um, before we start with the meningococcal disease, we need to understand what sepsis is mm-hmm. and um, what meningitis is, because these are the two diseases that come with meningococcus. Um, so, first of all, starting with sepsis. Sepsis is a life-threatening organ dysfunction, which happens due to a dysregulation of host response to any infection. So the infection, if the infection has entered the bloodstream, which causes organ dysfunction and dysregulated response from the host, uh, it is called sepsis. As the sepsis progresses, the child's condition gets gets complicated with the hypoperfusion of the tissues, causing organ failure, which then leads to septic shock. Mm -hmm. Now, sepsis means the infection has entered the bloodstream and then meningitis means that from the bloodstream this infection has gone to the surface of the brain or the meninges part of the brain. Um, This infection travels most of the times through the bloodstream and is commonly caused by the bacteria that that are commensals to our body and usually are staying in our body in our upper respiratory tract infection, um, upper respiratory tract. For example, um, Neisseria meningitis, and this is also called meningococcus, and we are going to talk about meningococcus today throughout. How does it happen then? If 
a child's immune response or immune system is weakened by any due to any reason mm -hmm. um, or the barrier from the mucosal surface has broken down due to any reason these commensals of the upper respiratory tract can then enter the bloodstream um, and then can go towards brain through the blood and can cause disinfection it can either be meningitis mm -hmm. or it can be sepsis or it can be both so meningococcal disease covers both of those um, infections and in up to 60% of cases it is both that have affected the child does that make sense yeah that makes a lot of sense and that was very in-depth and sort of easy to sort of like differentiate um be between um the two so in regards to sort of like um it, risk factors um i know maybe if a, a child is immune immunocompromised in 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 any way that could be sort of a risk factor um to developing it are there any other sort of risk factors um so the most important, most most important thing to consider is that is the child vaccinated or not because meningococcal disease because it was widespread in the uk in the past the immunization drive has kind of countered it now and we are seeing less and less cases of meningococcal disease in our community uh, because of the vaccination drive um, so it is important to find out if the child has been vaccinated or not and an unimmunized child is definitely a risk okay is there any other um, risk factors um, yes as we talked about immunocompromised child um, sometimes genetically a child can have um, low component um, low complement protein in the body mm -hmm. uh, which can then cause uh, them more prone to developing sepsis or these infections uh, this is another risk factor although rare but this can still happen okay great that's that's very interesting thank you um so if a patient was to sort of present to maybe a and e or maybe even um their their gp what are the sort of key questions you would want to ask about in history i mean a child okay um very good point raised there um, history and examination are the key you know are the key um, things to diagnose early sepsis um, and diagnosing early sepsis is a key to managing it effectively um, so history plays a very important part um, the important things to ask in the history uh, we will divide it into two different types so specific signs and symptoms and then non-specific signs and symptoms of the meningococcal disease. In the non-specific signs and symptoms, it, there comes fever. Um, but we have to remember, although fever is an important sign, it is not always present um, in cases of meningitis or meningococcal disease, uh, especially in neonates. They can even have low temperature or they can even have normal temperature at the time of presentation. Then other non-specific um, signs and symptoms will, will be vomiting, um, nausea, lethargy, irritability, refusing food uh, or milk, um, headache if the child is old enough to um, explain to us that they have headache, body aches, uh, breathing difficulties, rigors. Rigors is a very important sign. So if a 
if a parent says that the child was shaking um, with distress but was alert at the time, this is rigors. And it is important to differentiate rigors from um, febrile convulsion because sometimes these two can be uh, very difficult to uh, differentiate among themselves and parents are the best guide to tell us how the child was at the time when they were having rigors. Um, the other important thing is the how quickly the illness is progressing with a meningococcal disease or a bacterial meningitis the child will be becoming progressively ill very very quickly um, coming down from non-specific to the specific um, signs and symptoms of um, meningococcal disease non-blanching rash is very commonly talked of and um, we even um, um, we, we even tell parents um, about non-blanching rash and how to diagnose and how to look for a non-blanching rash. Um, the important thing to know about the non-blanching rash is that it may be less visible in darker skin tones. So keep mm -hmm. that in mind. Yeah. And in people or kids with darker skin tones, it is important to look for any rashes, non-blanching rashes on the palms of hands, soles of feet, or even in the conjunctiva, which are easier places to look or spot for these signs. Um, the other important thing about, thing about non-blanching rashes that sometimes this rash does not appear in up to 18 hours of the illness so it can be a late sign rather than an early sign or an early feature of the infection uh, in up to 30 percent of cases this rash actually starts as a macular and a blanching rash and then turns into a petechial or a purpural rash so it is also important that if you see a blanching rash do not get just reassured and um, in your red flag signs, explain to parents and instruct them to keep looking for any signs of changes in the rash and it becoming a purpural or a petechial rash or a non-blanching rash. Um, saying that, not every case presents with a non-blanching rash uh, in meningococcal disease. There is a specific strain of meningococcal disease called W135 strain in which there is no rash at all and it actually presents as gastrointestinal features with fever so diarrhea vomiting and fever okay that's very interesting i i did i did know about that before um are there any sort of you said about the non-blanching rash are there any other um features on examination um that might indicate um meningococcal disease yes so stiffness of the neck mm -hmm. um although might not be present in an infant. Um, altered mental state, mental state um, cap refill time of more than two seconds will also tell us that this child is going into septicemia or septic shock. Um, bulging fontanelle in less than two years old. Um, photophobia. 
And there are two specific signs that we talk about. One is Koenig's sign and the other one is Rudinsky's sign. Have you heard of those? I have heard of them. Um, but if you're able to sort of run through what they are again. Um... Yeah, definitely, definitely. So um, Rudinsky's sign is when we passively flex the neck of the child, it causes the flexion of both the legs and thighs um, because the child is in pain um, because of neck rigidity or neck stiffness. So when we flex the neck of the child, the legs just get flexed by themselves. This is called Brudinsky sign. Then coming to Kernick sign, if we lie the patient supine and have their hip flexed at 90 degrees, we, we cannot extend the knee of that same leg um, if we have their hip flexed in 90 degrees because that will cause them immense pain. Um, this is called Kernick sign. And these are the two signs that we see with um, bacterial meningitis and more commonly with meningococcal meningitis. Okay, that was very well explained. Thank you. Um, so if a if sort of a a, a child comes in and um, thinking about sort of the history and exam, um, you were thinking about um, meningococcal. Um, what would sort of be the next steps um, to confirm the diagnosis? So um, to confirm the diagnosis, we move on towards the investigations. Mm -hmm. um, and the common investigations that we do in case of any sepsis is we follow the sepsis 6 pathway. And this is something similar that we do with meningitic disease or meningococcal disease as well. And in the sepsis 6 pathway, we take six investigations out. Um, the six investigations are full blood count, CRP, coagulation screen, blood culture, PCR for meningococcus from the blood sample, and a blood gas. Um, the blood gas also includes blood glucose. So these are the initial investigations that we do. Um, of course, we also do a lumbar puncture if we are suspecting meningitis, and the lumbar puncture should be done. In those cases, the lumbar puncture should be done after we have the results of full blood count and coagulation screen back because very, if we are dealing with a very sick patient um, with a significant disease, the platelets can be low or the coagulation can be deranged, uh, which um, can cause a lumbar puncture to have detrimental effects on the baby or on the child. That was very well explained. Thank you. And that seems a reasonable place to hold it for this week. Join us again next week for the second half of this episode. And thank you to both Stephanie and Mega for recording that for us so far. Thank you for listening to Dragon Bites Basics. <laughs>